Let's turn to um, Psalm 2. Psalm 2. As I said last week, uh, I'm going to start in the front of the book of Psalms and work our way uh, forward as God permits. Um, and uh, work our way through these psalms together. Um, it's incredible just the, the, the richness of the psalms. And we've spoken about the psalms so often. But one of the other things that struck me as I, I was looking at this psalm was how it dovetails so well with what we're looking at in the morning. Especially this psalm. Because it is also seen from the throne room of heaven. We've been seeing that, haven't we, in in the book of Revelation, especially in chapters 5, 6, and 7, which takes us into the throne room and allows us to see world history from above, from God's perspective. And this is very much the case with Psalm 2, a thousand years before. And so rich are the Psalms and so rich are the prophets in looking at the kingdom of Jesus that it just it draws so heavily upon the, the Old Testament. And John's vision, as John is laying that out and describing what he's seen, he's really saying this is the fulfillment of the Psalms here, Isaiah there, Ezekiel here, and so on. So in many ways... Not totally, but in many ways, the book of Revelation is a commentary on, uh, the, on, on the Old Testament and the kingdom that was forecast. And so, uh, much of what we were looking at this morning, in fact, we will echo here this evening. The raging of the nations, uh, conspiring against the Lord and against the Lord's anointed, uh, seeking to destroy attack the anointed of the Lord through His people and the suffering and the misery uh, that comes upon them. And uh, we see as well in this psalm the destiny of the wicked as we do in the book of Revelation in chapter 6. And next week in the final section of chapter 6 we're going to see how God pours out His judgment upon the nations. And that is really the sun uh, at the end of, cha- of, of Psalm 2 uh, uh, displaying his wrath upon the nations. Kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. And we'll see next week how the, uh, the, the wicked, the evil, those who have despised God will call down the mountains upon them. They will plead for the mountains to fall on them to shield them from the wrath of the Lamb. So, uh, it, it wasn't something I planned. Uh, like I say, I'm not that clever. It's uh, the, 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 that these two things dovetail. It's even better when uh, these things happen providentially. And So, what we're looking at in Psalm 2 tonight, uh, uh, wonderfully, uh, highlights what we were uh, thinking about this morning. And uh, so here uh, we see Psalm 2. And Psalm 2 is, uh, strangely, uh, a psalm that follows Psalm 1. 
and, and many have seen in Psalm 2 a kind of a, a reflection of Psalm 1, but in a greater way. Uh, I think John MacArthur in his, in his study Bible, he, said, he talks about the difference between Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 in terms of one being for the people in individuals, as it's calling the, the, the man who follows God and the, man, the, the wicked who follows uh, his own sinful ways, and then the nations who follow, the nation that follows God and the nations that follow their own sinful ways. And so Psalm 2 follows up uh, with this um, uh, view of the nations and how the nations seek to go their own way, whereas Psalm 1 shows how individuals seek to go their own way. And so in Psalm uh, uh, 1, uh, it is the righteous that meditate on the Lord's instruction. The righteous are thinking, they're planted in the, the Word of God, they're allowing that, as we saw last time, to nourish them, to come up through their roots. They meditate on it, they go to the Lord's table, uh, they, they discuss the Word, go to the Bible study, they seek to uh, intentionally put it into um, practice in their lives. But here in Psalm 2, rather than meditating on the Word of the Lord, they are plotting against God. And so that you see this act, this not only is it taken, as MacArthur says, to a national level, but it's completely turned around and it's, it's expressed in this plotting against God. Plotting against His anointed, as we see there in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against His anointed. How does that differ from Psalm 1? Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. And so you see how uh, Psalm 2 is a logical progression out of Psalm 1 and how they are so contrary to one another. So one quietly meditates, grows, and is blessed by the word of the, the Lord. But here... Psalm 2 is accentuating uh, the evil by repetition. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart. And so, uh, uh, here we see something taken to a, a very national rather than a personal level. We see the cosmic implications, especially as the gospel spreads, as the, as the gospel goes out from the nation of Israel to the surrounding nations. And you see whole nations, even today, uh, uh, outlawing Christianity, destroying Christianity, seeking to annihilate Christianity. We've seen it last fall with the evacuation of Afghanistan and how the Christian community was reduced to possibly dozens from tens of thousands of Christians who, have, who, who left, went into other places, and, and we don't know exactly what the numbers are in Afghanistan, but uh, the, the, the numbers have dwindled radically. 
But the psalm, again, is taken to a greater level in terms of of whom it speaks. The psalm's immediate application was to King David, to the king. It was was to give the people a shape in their minds, uh, an understanding of the kingdom. And what what God's relationship to the king was. He was a a kind of a son of God. That's, That's how... That's how God spoke in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel 7 about the king, that he would be God's son. He will be a son to me. And so the Psalms start to help the people shape in their minds uh, what the king was going to be like. But of course, there are many Psalms that kind of overflow their banks. They can't be contained by the historical circumstances of that time. It's basically saying this is something that won't fit David. It won't even fit Solomon. But it's, it's, we're seeing something that now goes above and beyond all of those. And the New Testament writers, uh, uh, like Peter and James and John and, and, and all of these people, were not backward in saying that these things belong to Jesus. And in the passage Tim read for us, that is certainly the case. They, they say, this is what was spoken of by David. And it, it is in, in, uh, uh, fulfilled in the life of Jesus and his disciples right in the here and now. And so David knew that in writing this, God would fulfill his promises to bring a greater king, a greater uh, Messiah. And so he begins there in verses 1 to 3, uh, looking at these nations that are rebelling against God. And it's interesting, as, as it's first applied in the New Testament, it's funny where the, the New Testament writers pick this psalm up. They, they, they apply it not to the Romans, or the Egyptians, or the Persians, or any of those, but apply it to their own people. Herod and Pontius Pilate, and with the Jews, as uh, we read there in, uh, in Acts 4. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, the people, and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and plan had predestined to take place. So, <laughs> They never let their description of evil get too far without punctuating it with the sovereignty of God. To let take place what your hand had originally decided. But it's interesting that the first way in which this is applied is applied to the people within the nation of Israel. Which is strange. And that if that is so within the nation of Israel, it can also be said of those within the church themselves. With the church down through the centuries, those who, uh, who have been entrusted with the Word of God, yet throw off the truth of God. Throw off the Gospel. Throw off the morality of God. You see it in the church. Around the world. Where you have, even in our own country, 
denominations who will let people be ministers who are atheists. Try to wrap your mind around that. And so these people are throwing off not only the morality that God brings, not only the truth, but, but the actual existence of God. I refuse to acknowledge that you even exist. Yet I want to be called a minister in this church. Can you imagine such madness? And yet that is what's taking place. There is a support group. Even when I was a student in Scotland, hearing of a support group in a church in England, a support group for people in the ministry who didn't believe in God. And they formed a group to encourage and support one another uh, to still be ministers, to do social good, to visit people, to give them a little boost and so, but to not believe all this antiquated, these antiquated ideas about the existence of God. When science has thrown him off his throne. And so you have... If, 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 if these words then could be applied not to the nation so much as the people of Israel, then it, it also is applied to the church today. In many quarters, people who are raging and plotting in vain against the Lord and against His anointed. So there's this idea. Why do the nations rage? In fact, I hadn't seen it before, but when Tim was reading there, the, the, uh, Peter is filled, just before he quotes Psalm 2, he's filled with that sense of wonder. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders. Notice there, there's that echo, rulers of the people. If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to you, all of you, that, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised up from the dead, by him, by him this man stands, is standing well before you. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So there's that same sense of wonder. We're on trial here for doing something good, healing a man. In the name of a man who spent three years healing and loving and blessing. And we are facing this, this unspeakable rage from you, this uh, this anger that cannot be uh, appreciated or understood, it's that sense of wonder. Why are they doing it? Why are they responding? But there is uh, a sense of wonder here by uh, the psalmist because he is also asking why, because they are setting themselves against the Lord. And David has had great experience 
in going out and fighting the Lord's battles and seeing that when the Lord moves, who can stand against him? Whether it be the Philistines or whether it be the, the Moabites or whoever they are fighting, it's futile when God is on the move. When God chooses to ste step in, what can these nations do? David knows how mighty these nations are, how wicked they are, how insatiable their appetites are. But yet, his confidence is in God. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? And again, that gives us a window into Revelation chapter 12. Rejoice, O heavens! But woe to the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you with great fury. And he is now working through the nations. He's working through institutions. He's working through every, all levels of society all around the world. And using those as tools, as instruments. You see, we, can, we can't be naive in this. We can't be naive and, 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 and forget that the devil has his agents in every level of society. And so it was in Jesus' day. Whether it was Herod, whether it was Pontius Pilate, whether it was the Pharisees, or whether it was Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, or even one of the inner circle, Peter, whom Jesus said, Get thee behind me, Satan, for you desire the things that be of God, not of man. And so you have this picture of the fury coupled with the subtlety of the devil as he infiltrates the world, as he infiltrates the nations at many different levels and in many different ways in seeking to destroy. It's not just one thing. It's just not one, through states or through uh, uh, certain philosophies, but it's many, many different ways in which the devil can work. And it is an expression of the devil's rage. And the people plot in vain. One person has said that, see how far man has come from walking with God in fellowship to plotting, devising, and scheming. And so you have that here, and you have it expressed so clearly in the Gospels uh, where that was very much the case, that the the, at the Passover, the priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death. For they feared the people. And they were glad when Judas came and, and took, up, took them up on their offer to find a suitable time to betray him. Do you see that here, friends? You see that how this comes right down to the very life, the last week of Jesus' life. The nations, the people. Well, Acts chapter 4 said that is exactly what happened in the last week of Jesus' life. And we see it here. We see how, how that is being worked out. And so they 
they they plot, they scheme, they try to they they try in their little back rooms to come up with the best question, right? You can see them with the papers spread out all over the table and they're all pacing back and forth. What question can we get them on? Ah, taxes paid to Caesar. Let's try and, try and get them on that. Oh, that didn't work. Let's try them on divorce. A man, ha a woman has married to five different brothers. Whose husband, whose wife will she be in the, ah, couldn't get them on that one. Let's got to go back to the drawing board again. Plotting and scheming against the Lord, against the one who, who showed His power in their midst by healing and loving and forgiving. No man spoke as this man. All of these things, and yet there was this insatiable appetite to rebel. One of the biggest mistakes, as I said this morning, is to think that it's out there. That that is in the heart of each and every one of us. Every sin is an expression of lawlessness. And we have to be aware of that ourselves. Just as Peter would never have guessed that he would have been used as a tool or instrument in Satan's hand, and yet Jesus had to address him in that way. So it is with all of us. The Bible tells us that Satan goes around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. We are to resist him steadfast uh, in the faith. And so they say, let us burst their bonds apart. Let us cast away their cords from us. What a wonderful expression, those words of burst their bonds and their cords. These words speak of the ties, the things that tie us to God. The moral law. The Ten Commandments that God has placed upon man and put in his heart. You see, man was never to be completely autonomous in that way. We were never meant to be completely free. We were created by God and for God, placed under His dominion. And so, uh, these words, bonds and cords, are kind of a, a negative way of describing something that was true. We are tied to God. We have a moral responsibility to God. We have hands and eyes and ears and feet with which to serve God, to cultivate this world in which we live, to guard the world in which we live. And so we are tied to God by cords of love and obligation and morality and all of these things. But the wicked say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Rather than seeing these things as good things, man sees them as uh, a bondage. And so there's this desire to live, as, as we've been saying over these last number of weeks, and you might sound like a broken record, but this is the world in which we live. These are the waters in which we are swimming now. And we are seeing it come to the fore in such shocking ways to the point where you say, it's right there. The Bible says it. it. It's exactly how the Bible describes these 
cords of morality, these bonds of obligation that we have to serve God and to live in, live our lives and live in the world the way God would have us do based on creation, man is looking at it now saying, throw that off. Don't let the church or your parents or any, any of these tell you what is right and what is wrong, what is good. Friends, that's happening in elementary schools and kindergartens in our own country. That's happening in churches. That's happening in every, like I say, every level of society. The devil is raging and he's inspiring the peoples to say, let us throw off these shackles. And when it comes down to the gospel, well, that is simply outlawed. Yet God gave us these things for our good. Just like we build roads. Say, look, if you stay on here, you'll safely get from A to B. But the insanity of man says, no. Let's go, who, who, who told us we had to drive on that road? Let's go down into the ditch and across the fields and smash through that fence line and just go our own way. That's, I mean, people don't live like that when they drive around. But in their own personal lives, that's what they're doing in effect. They're saying, let's, let's live off-road in, in terms of our lives. In Hosea, God says, I led them with cords of kindness. You see that? What was seen as a cord of kind, kindness is now interpreted as a cord of bondage. And so the nations are saying, let's throw off those cords. Let's throw off those shackles. God's saying, I led them with cords of kindness. With bands of love. You hear? It's, it's echoing Psalm 2 there. With bands of love. I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. Jesus says, come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And you shall find rest for your souls. And yet, and this is what Peter says, So they call them and charge them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you or rather to God, you must judge, for we cannot speak of what we have heard, seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they, let, they uh, let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. And then Peter, as they return, he it's, it, it's like this psalm immediately presented itself to him when he was praying. Because he could see what was meant to be God's cords of love and bonds of kindness now interpreted as shackles and chains. Friends, that's the world in which we live. And each of us has to find a way to live in that we have to be able as Christians to cope with that in our own workplace or our families or over uh, Thanksgiving dinner when we have other family and friends around who may not see the world as we do and we have to find a way to speak the truth in love. 
being ready to give a defense for the hope that lies within us. And so the people declare their freedom as they throw off all that inhibits them. To give expression that whatever desires you have in your heart are always right. Now, now if you push these people, if you push people on that, they would say, no, you can't live like that. Because people want to murder. People want to steal. Does every desire that comes up within people, the freedom to do whatever you want, is that always good? No. And so even people who lead, lead insane, ridiculous lives according to that kind of philosophy would have to see that there is a limit to it. That you cannot survive as a society throwing off all uh, inhibitions. And then the answer to that, of course, is the Gospel. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. This is a way of, of uh, ex explaining the the ridiculousness, just as we see something ridiculous. We laugh at it. It strikes humor. It, 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 it has a sense of humor to it. And God is seeing something ridiculous here. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my King on Zion, my holy hill. So here is the first um, a hint of... Uh, of Jesus as the anointed, which is the Hebrew word for, the, the, it's translated in the Greek as Christos, which means anointed. That's where our word Christ comes from. It means anointed, Messiah. So Christ is the title of Jesus. You might say, we, we might say, Mr. So-and-so, or Reverend So-and-so, or Dr. So-and-so. The doctor is the profession, or the office, or Prime Minister so-and-so, that's, that's their office, and their name is what comes after. That's Jesus wasn't given the name Jesus Christ when he was born. He was given the name Jesus. He was anointed Messiah at his birth, at his baptism rather, where the Holy Spirit comes down and anoints him. He's anointed with the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And he is then declared to be the anointed the Messiah, the Christ, as it is uh, 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 shown in the New Testament. And so it says here, they have taken their stand against the Lord and His anointed. As for me, I have set my King on Zion, my holy hill. It's interesting that Jesus comes into His kingship in, uh, uh, in Zion. That's where the temple was. And so Jesus becomes a priest king. He, he enters... He, he has all dominion and authority and power given to him because of his work on the cross. It's inseparable from that. Again, going back to the chapter we read, where Peter is establishing the sovereignty of Jesus and the fact that, look, we can't, we, if it comes down to a choice between following you and following the Lord, we're, we're going to follow the Lord every time because. He is the king who has been established on the throne. God has instituted him on Zion's hill. And Peter explains that through the cross. Look, look at what he says. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. 
and there is salvation and none else, and so on. So Peter connects the kingship of Jesus and the establishment of what uh, he is saying here in Psalm 2 with the cross. This is how he came to sit on that throne. And in Peter's inaugural sermon there on the day of Pentecost, and people are saying, what's going on here? Are these people drunk? What, what does this all mean? And Peter says, this is what was spoken. That God would raise up David's son to sit on his throne. And how did he get there? Because he went to the cross. You with cruel and wicked hands did slay the Lord of glory by the foreknowledge and determined counsel of God. Oh, they loved talking about that, didn't they? They just relished in that. They could explain evil. They could be upfront with evil at the same time as to uh, see it in the light of the sovereignty of God. What, what a freedom that gets, gives us, friends, doesn't it? Where the world is trying to find their freedom by throwing off God, throwing off morality, throwing off the way things are. We find our greater freedom and joy as believers here tonight by being drawn deeper and deeper into the sovereignty of God and say, look, we can be upfront about evil in the world and evil in our hearts. We can confront it head on because we not only have a sovereign God, we have a gracious God. And we find our freedom by being drawn into Him, not by running away from Him and throwing off the shackles. And this is how God responds to the evil of the world and to our evil. By the king that he has set up on Zion. He is the answer to our slavery. To our lack of freedom. He is our kinsman redeemer. He is the one who purchases our freedom through his blood. I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And he's not talking there about the Trinity. He's talking there about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus when he was declared to be the Son of God with power. And so that's, that's how the New Testament uses those words. You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And so this happens when Jesus is raised from the dead and, and goes to the right hand of the Father. And so Peter again in Acts 2, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. It's... it's so amazing. It's so awe-inspiring that who, who was there as Peter was explaining the cross, explaining the sovereignty of God in this, and mocking the devil for his plans failing? Who was present? It tells us there that it was people from every different nation And how is it that we hear each of us in his own language 
Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, Cretans and Arabians, hearing in our own language the wonderful works of God. What it should speak to us of here, I mean, we, we often think of application. How do I apply this to my life? And you may go from here thinking, I don't know what the immediate application is apart from, wow. <laughs> that when I look at the synergistic uh, uh, application of the Old and New Testament as they are working together and complement one another so beautifully in not only in... Uh, in uh, people's lives, but coming from the mind of God. You say, however I'm going to apply this when I go out the door, that's one thing, but God is just unveiling through His Word the magnificence of His truth, that it agrees, that it is, that no man could do this, that no man could write this stuff and have it agree so beautifully. And yet, this is our inheritance, friends. These are the, this is the treasure chest in which we drive our fingers down and let those jewels drip through our fingers. This is the reality of which we are a part today. And we're living it. And we may not like what's going on in the world, but it sure is clarifying things for us. It surely is saying to us, this is exactly what's happening. The nations are raging, and the people at every level, institution, individuals, corporately, whatever it is, are just throwing off, seeking to throw off God's cords, God's shackles at every turn. And we're seeing it. And though it may be an unsettling time for us to live in, we're, we are more and more convinced of the truthfulness of God's Word. So he says, ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage. That's who was standing before Peter there. The nations and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. There's the judgment of, of uh, Jesus coming through as we are seeing in the book of Revelation. As, is, as the psalmist here is bringing together the judgment of God and the righteous and the, the mercy of God. For just, we, we haven't read of God's judgment there before we're into verse 10. Now therefore, kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Remember Daniel as he's standing before Nebuchadnezzar and he interprets his dream about the tree that blossomed all the birds of the air came and found their nest in the tree and then one of the angels came and chopped the tree down and Nebuchadnezzar says what does this mean Daniel's brokenhearted he says oh king may this not be may this never come upon you but repent turn to the Lord and he's saying the same thing and maybe Daniel had this in his mind the mercy that God would extend to even the most wicked of kings and rulers Nebuchadnezzar would not listen. 
And he goes out and he looks and he says, look at this great Babylon which I have created. And he did not give glory to God and he was made like an animal of the field. But here is God's mercy. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. Again, MacArthur says here, instead of immediate judgment, the Lord and His anointed mercifully provide an opportunity for repentance. Five commandments, he says, re, uh, place respons responsibility on the munit uh, uh, mutinous mankind. And those things, he says here, are be wise, be warned, serve, rejoice, kiss the sun. He, he's, he's multiplying these commands to describe an intensity. And he's saying, be wise, be warned. It's much like the call of, of Proverbs, isn't it? To embrace the path of life, the path of wisdom. We saw that in Proverbs. You know, there's always these, these two roads. There's the path of wisdom and there's the path of, of the fool. And that's very much coming out here. Embrace the wise path to life. Avoid the foolish path that leads to death. Friends, that is a decision that comes down to each one of us as we hear the Gospel. Again, we cannot think that all of this lies out there. It would be a grave mistake for me to simply say, to stand here tonight and decry the sins of the world and not bring it home. Because it's not the world that is here, it's ourselves hearing the Gospel. And we must, because nations and peoples are made up of individuals like us. We must hear those words, to kiss the Son, to, to give Jesus the respect and honor He deserved. To kiss the King, to kiss His ring, was to acknowledge that He is supreme. Just like people come and would bow before the Queen and now bow before the King, acknowledging who they are. And to kiss the Son is to acknowledge Jesus, not only as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, but my Savior, my Lord, that God has put my king on Zion, his holy hill. That it's his kingdom, the, the, the kingdom of my Lord and my Jesus, that is now reigning and ruling. That is what it is to kiss the Son and to obey him. It's to live for him. It's to honor him in our lives. That's why it says, blessed are those who take refuge in him. Again, that's how Psalm 1 begins. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. And Psalm 2 ends in the same way. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. And strangely, take refuge in Him from Him. From His wrath that is quickly kindled. And so as we move through the Psalms. We do so as we did with the book of Revelation. With establishing the supremacy of Jesus. And as we 
look at the Psalms and their ups and downs and how they apply to us, we do so saying, this is the one who was on the throne. This is the one who was sovereign in our lives. And now we can apply those Psalms in that light uh, to God's glory. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we pray that you would bless us now tonight as we go from this place. Father, we thank you that your word agrees so beautifully that uh, the, we have the key of understanding our world through the words of, of Peter and the other apostles who were not backward in applying all of these things to their own individual lives and to the authorities that they saw at every level was working against them. Father, we live in a similar world today, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in schools, in universities, wherever we find ourselves. Lord, we know that the, the influence of the power of darkness is pervasive. Help us, therefore, O oh God, to be wise and to be warned, to embrace the gospel, to, to delight ourselves in it as the man of God does in Psalm 1, to meditate, to be deeply rooted, and to allow the Word and the Spirit of God to course through our veins, to be like that tree planted by a river that brings forth its fruit in its season. Help us, O oh God. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.